0: Hello and welcome to episode 153 of the Rollo and Slappy Show. Today is July 15th, 2019. I am Rollo McFlugel and with me is Slappy Jones too. We are both, of course, from McFlugel.com. The show notes page for this episode will be McFlugel.com slash 153. You will be able to find things we talk about as well as checking out our sponsor liberty mugs.com where you will find awesome libertarian and bitcoin themed mugs and maybe even a tractor themed mugged here and there uh and also check out 10 hours of bitcoin.com where if you're interested in learning about bitcoin but you don't know where to start you don't know where you know the the, the economics or the technical stuff may seem over your head just go over there And there is 10 hours of content curated just for you to get you onto a path of understanding the value proposition of Bitcoin and understand why so many of us are so bullish on it in the long term. So that will be in the show notes page. That is 10hoursofbitcoin.com. And also, if you click the donate button on the bottom of that website, you can go see how to make a, uh, a nice chunk of money by helping us with a uh, with a wiki of bitcoin attackers or if you want to donate to just help us out that way that's great too so with that i'm gonna hand it over to you slappy to introduce our episode or actually let me kind of introduce it (laughs) a little bit and because you're kind of going to be the the interviewee for this one but uh i it was a little little bit of time ago kind of recently last couple months i guess Uh, you were doing something that a lot of libertarians talk about doing or being involved in, but may not exactly have the opportunity to do. You were on a jury for a trial. So what was that all about?
1: Yeah. So it was a federal case, federal criminal case, um, conspiracy to distribute PCP. There was seven defendants, uh, It was a long trial. It was several weeks. I haven't talked about this, not at all on the podcast. I obviously have talked a lot about it to Rallo and and some other people. Um, But even even friends and family, I haven't talked a ton about it. It was a very, um, you know, I guess everyone will handle things different way, but it was uh, very stressful for me. It was a big decision when you're in federal criminal court. There's a lot of responsibility or these are very serious charges is is I guess what I'm getting at. And you need 12 people to agree. It's not easy to do, um, especially because uh, they rarely go to court to begin with. Most of them are pled guilty to. And uh, so we all talk about, well, not all of us. A lot of us talk about nullification and uh, being on a jury and nobody likes to be on a jury um, <laughs> with good reason. It it kind of throws you into something I didn't really want to be a part of. Um, of course, you know, we always think about it, like I said, but, and think of the idea and how fun it would be to be on a jury and just like stick it to a state, you know, but uh, it was very stressful. It's very hard. It's a long process and it's an intimidating process on top of that. So, Um, I'll ask, answer any questions you have for me. Um, I could talk for a long time on this case. It was a very long case. It was several weeks, a couple months. Um, so, you know, that's time out of work, time away from the family. Uh, I was not sequestered for it. I did get to go home at night, but my, uh, short commute to work became a very long one to the federal courthouse. So it was a couple extra hours a day in the car. Um, but anyway, uh it's still if you can tell by the way I'm talking, it's still a little uncomfortable talking about it. I just didn't like the whole experience, but uh I'm happy to answer any questions you have.
0: Sure. So maybe uh before we get into because I want to talk about what it's like being on a jury, because like you said, uh I mean I've never been on a jury and I had certain ex before talking to you about this, I had certain expectations that ended up being very wrong when what it's what it's like to be on a jury after you kind of explained what it's like and so i think it's very valuable for there's a lot of libertarians you know it's i think they fall on both sides of the fences and i've been on both sides to say like hey i'm going to do everything i can to not be a slave and and have them use my labor to be on a jury and you know if that's you know if if you're going to be miserable on a jury then maybe you know maybe don't get on it um but for those that do want to get on it and try to do something good for the people there and try to work against the state like you said um I think it's uh, unless you know someone or have been on a jury yourself to understand everything that goes on and how it's not quite that simple. It can be pretty pretty not only pretty stressful but you could actually, you know, really kind of mess things up. But I don't want to like tell your story, so let's uh let's, yeah. uh, let's do you want to like kind of give a background for the, what this case was like before we talk about, you know, because I think that'll help make sense of of what you were trying to do as a juror. Uh, you know, really trying to do the right thing with this. So, could you give some background for what was going on with this case?
1: Sure. Well, I'll, um, I'll talk. So, here's here's one thing I want to put out there. Since the trial ended, I've talked to a few of the attorneys who were on the case, and even some of the defendants. And uh, it, like I said, there was seven of them on trial. And we did acquit a few of them. So we may that one of them at least agreed to come on our our show. So we may get that done. So this is what I kind of wanted to do here is before they come on, give my perspective and my experience as a juror. And then we'll have one of those guys come on and talk about their experience as a defendant. And we can see what matches up what I was thinking versus what they were thinking or or any questions there. So I'll start, I mean, from the very beginning, (laughs) because I I do like to tweet about jury nullification, And so every now and then people will send me a DM or tweet at me that they have jury duty and we have conversations and they ask what you should do. And the reality is, I don't know. Um, I did get on a jury. I was shocked. I was on the jury. I thought if they had asked me any questions, I would be off the jury. And so um, they never did, which was, uh, there was voir dire, but, uh, I'll, I guess I'll explain that process. So I guess I'll start just from the beginning of like I got a letter in the mail, um, or uh, a letter, a survey in the mail to fill out to complete for um, jewelry duty. This was probably three years ago. Um, yeah, no, it was two years ago. It was two years ago in the summer, and I you know, they they give that threat like it must be back within whatever days, and otherwise you're be summoned or whatever. What I've understand is if you throw that in the trash and never reply, nothing happens to you. They just keep sending it to you, and I guess if it goes past three or four times, they might actually call you and tell you to do it. Um so anyway, I completed the survey, I sent it in, and I heard nothing for several months, got a jury duty notification for was it probably back in October or November of 2017? And uh, it said to call the night before. So I called them. I had three days or one trial. I called the night before. I didn't have to go in. Then they send me a letter saying, You've been dismissed or, or not dismissed. I forget what they say, that you will, you will be called again in the future. Um, but I didn't hear anything for over a year, or I don't know how many months it was, about a year, when I got another letter. I'm thinking the same thing. I'm going to call. They're not going to need me. I'm, I'm not going to have to go. Uh, the first night I called, that's what happened. Second night I called, they said, you must report to jury duty. They gave me the address. Um, and I went down there in the morning. So I thought, okay, here I am. This was a huge room. There was about 300 people in this room. And we're all sitting around. I'm drinking coffee, which was free. Uh, I guess you know we paid for it, but you know, drinking my coffee in the back.
0: I paid for it.
1: <laughs> I drank the one that you paid for actually. Okay, Thank you. I did make sure that I got that one. Good. Um, I've had jury duty before. This wasn't my first experience being in jury duty. Uh, but it was my first one with federal. And so typically I go to jury duty and I sit around all day and I go home. I've never gotten called for voir dire. I've never, and I, I've had it for probably four times. Um, between the two counties I've lived in. And so I kind of expected I went into this expecting not to be on it because I have had it several times I never got picked and then I go into this room and when you're at jury duty for the county at least in my experience there's a lot of people but you know maybe 50 60 people um this there was there was a ton this room was huge it was full and uh they they tell us they're going to call a jury and my name was the very first one called so i was sitting in the number 1 seat and they called 120 people and that was about half the room if if that so that's why i, I estimate about 300 or so yeah 240 to 300 uh, there's a lot of people in there. Um, and that's when we got called up to Vordier. So there's about 120 of us in this, in the courthouse, in the courtroom with the defendants, the U.S. attorneys, the judge. Everyone's in there. I was in the jury box because I was number one. So the, the first 16 of us were in the jury box. Everyone else was seated in the, in the rows in the courthouse. And the judge did Vordier which I listened very carefully to the questions. Can you, can you
0: explain what voir dire is? I, I don't even know what sure. that term is.
1: I don't know what it translates to, but it's when they question the juries to find out if there's any biases.
0: Okay. And this
1: was, um, this is where people you'll, you'll hear anyone who gets joy duty. I don't want to be on it. I'm going to tell them I'm a racist or whatever, or I hate the cops. And that is probably a good way to get off the jury. Um, and I didn't want to be on the jury. I didn't think I would be on the jury, but there was something in the back of my head, like we talk about this all the time. Here's an opportunity. So to say, I mean, if I really if I really didn't want to be on, I could have made a scene, and I, I don't know if they arrest you or what they do, but I wouldn't have been on the jury. Um, so they asked the voir dire questions, and they were questions. I don't have them in front of me, but they're questions like, would you have a problem believing the testimony of a police officer because they're a police officer or would you be able to believe the testimony of a defendant because they're a defendant or something like that? So I was listening very carefully to them and, uh, I I do believe I answered them all truthfully. um, Because it says, could you, like, you'll say things like, could you put your personal biases aside and make a decision? And, yeah, I can do that. And so I answered truthfully. And and I, I answered all of them. And then they dismissed us. We went to lunch. We had to be back in, like, three hours. It was a long break. We sat up in another courtroom where they then brought... not the judge. It was someone who works there. I don't know if it's a clerk or whoever it is. She she would get up there and call out juror numbers like number 10, 15, 26, 35, 45. Please go to the back of the room. And then someone would escort them out and they'd go back down to the original courtroom we were in where the attorneys and the defendants and the judge were. And they would ask further questions. I never got called down into that room. So I was feeling pretty good. I'm like, they're not going to put me on a jury without talking to me. Um, but then it got to about four o'clock and they called out a whole bunch of numbers. I was one of those numbers. They called out about 45 of us at this time. And we went back down to that courtroom where the judge and the defendants and the attorneys were, and we sat in order by number. And I sat there for about 50 minutes. No one said anything The, the attorneys were talking to each other and they're going back and forth and you see them scribbling stuff on their, on their notepads. And I guess that's where they were making their challenges, Uh, a challenge. I think each side, if I understand it correctly, gets four challenges that are um, you can't dispute and then you can make other challenges for for cause. And that gets a juror off the jury. Um, So that's what they were doing. And I guess they settled on their jury because the judge called out the numbers and I was one of those numbers. I was number one. So I went <clears throat> went into the number one seat in the jury and that was the start of the trial. I mean, that was, it happened quick. No one says anything to you and you don't really know what's going on. The judge swore us in, told us to be back at nine o'clock the next day. So, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, I don't know what I did to get on the jury. I was dressed business casual. I wasn't talking a whole lot. I, wasn't being loud. I wasn't being opinionated. I didn't say the word nullification, which I'm sure would have got me off the jury, but I just kind of kept to myself and assumed I wasn't going to be on. I've never been on one before. They didn't ask me additional questions and then it just happens. You're there. So, uh, <laughs> and that was one of the, you know, I had to call my boss, tell them I'm on the jury and he, he was really good. He worked with me to, uh, make sure I'd be okay. People would take over my work as while I was out, but um, that was a very stressful night because the judge told us it was going to be a 12 week trial. Wow! <laughs> and now you're thinking I'm stuck and I didn't know what to do. Like I, and then you're at this point where all you knew about the case was that it was a drug case. You didn't know anything else. You didn't know, Oh, you, we knew that the defendants were Muslim and that it was a drug case and they, you know, so Puts you in a tough spot as a juror, uh, just because I already kind of knew how I was going to vote, but I got to be here for the next 12 weeks. I'm going to be missing work. I'm in sales. Uh, that can be very expensive. And just the whole thing was just a, it was, it was kind of a whirlwind. And that was just the beginning of the trial. They said, show up the next day. So we show up at nine o'clock the next day and it just started. There's no instruction. There's no, here's what you're going to do. Here's the order. Here's who's going to talk. They don't introduce you to the people. You just show up and they go. So um I forget what your question was and I'm sure that didn't answer it, but that was just kind of the lead up to it. No, I don't know it, how and I that's got good. picked. I have no clue how I got picked. I didn't want to be on it, like I said, but um I was and you know then <laughs> then you're stuck and then i then i switched into thinking about how i'm going to handle this thing so anyway ask if you have any questions ask for me i'll talk about the case um i'll talk about deliberations. what the jurors know what they don't know um whatever whatever you got
0: yeah can you talk about like what what the actual case was uh i mean what you just uh, everything you just said was a good was was what you should have said instead of what I was asking, but maybe just give a, 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 you know, the summary of what, what the case was about just so that people can understand a little bit what's going on. Because it's again, it's like stuff isn't necessarily cut and dry, especially that you said there's seven defendants in this this case. There was Um,
1: another thing. The reason I mentioned earlier that I have spoken to the defendants is that I've learned a lot since the end of the trial. And so I'm trying to do this episode uh, without that knowledge. So just kind of from my perspective of what was going on through the case, what I was, um, you know, what was, what I was going through and what, what we know and what we saw. And then when we bring him on, we can talk about some of the other stuff. Sure. But this was a conspiracy to distribute PCP. uh which fencyclidine. Yeah. Um, this drug. It could be in powder form or liquid form. As far as I know, in powder form they call it angel dust. Um, but this was all liquid PCP, in which you buy a little glass jar about an ounce, costs two hundred fifty bucks, uh, at least at the time this was going on, and you dip cigarettes into the vial, into the little jar, and you smoke it, and uh, that gets you your your high. Costs about ten bucks a dip, and uh, you know, you sell about fifty of them per per ounce. So, just to give you a perspective on uh, what kind of money we're talking about, um, so you have a gallon of it—that's a lot of PCP. Sure. So there was seven guys who were indicted. There was actually more. A few of them pled guilty. We didn't know this at the time, though. We just knew the seven were on trial. They. They had a main guy you could tell that the government wanted to go after, and the other guys were kind of ancillary to the main guy. At least that was my perspective. Um, they got most of their evidence from a wiretap on his cell phone. They also had pole cams, which is just uh, exactly what it sounds like. They set up a camera on top of a telephone pole. And just like in Sopranos, they they do it like they pretend they're Pico. Pico is Philadelphia Electric Company. Um, and they just go up there in the trucks and they put on a camera and it was a motion sensor, motion detection. It didn't catch everything, but it caught a lot. They also did some uh, mobile surveillance and stationary surveillance. Stationary is when you just sit in the car across the street and watch. Mobile is when you follow someone. Um, and they had a confidential source, which was a very interesting part of this case. Um, just some, some kind of, I, yeah, I don't know what direction you want me to go in. But the confidential source is what got them the information to apply for a wiretap, which they did. Through the wiretap, they were able to identify the other guys in this case, and that's how they were indicted. It was all from this wiretap, which they got from a confidential source, but there was questions all over this confidential source and the way they handled them. Um, It was actually kind of surprising to me that the judge uh, allowed this, but I don't know the law as well as the judge.
0: So uh, that's just my opinion. Sure. So it sounds like that, you know, they did a lot of surveillance. They had this this informant. And so it sounds like on the surface that, the state built up a a pretty big case against these guys, but you know, you said that you just didn't want to go in and just say, uh, I just, I'm just nullifying this, that you actually were made the decision that these guys were not guilty. So what, what led you to, to come to that conclusion based on, you know, everything was going on was what was the matter with this? All the evidence that the, the state was bringing against these guys.
1: Sure. So, um, all right. So first, there was a lot, of, um, a lot of questions all over the investigation that even the DEA agent admitted to. And he kept saying his defense was, well, I made a mistake. I messed up. That was a mistake. That was a mistake. So it was that's why I said it was surprising to me that the judge allowed this. And there was a reason for that, that I'm not. Uh, informed enough to really understand and explain. But I was told why the judge allowed it because I did ask one of the attorneys. Um, but here's the thing, and we'll just cut a long story short. Uh, when you go into deliberations, what I was thinking, now, you this was a long trial. I had a lot of time to think about this. I heard a lot of evidence. I heard... Um, I I tried to have lunch with every single one of the jurors since this was a long trial and if some trials are only two or three days or even one day, maybe this was a long trial. So I tried to get to know every juror and be very friendly with them and not let them know my politics, my opinion, my philosophy, whatever, just talk to them about family, about sports um, whatever, do small talk. I actually met a guy on the, on the jury who's we've become friends since then. Um, but I, I, I really tried to make a point to sit and talk to everyone so that they can, at least, it was my hope. They would think I'm a reasonable person. I'm not a, um, crazy, like hate the state kind of guy. I'm, I'm, I'm a reasonable, normal person you can have a conversation with. And I, I think through these things, And that was kind of my goal from the beginning is to meet with everyone because I knew when we got to deliberations that this was going to be tough. Uh, And it was. It was very hard. We were in deliberations for a week or a little, maybe a little more than a week. And uh, there was a lot of disagreement in there. And uh, to get to, I guess, the point, what I want to say is had I gone into deliberations and just said not guilty, we would have gotten nowhere. We would have gotten absolutely nowhere with these other jurors. So my strategy when going in was let's convince the other jury jurors that they're not guilty. And so I listened very carefully to the defense. And part of my, my thinking in that is if everyone pleads guilty and I looked up the statistics in Eastern District of Pennsylvania in 2017, over 97% of drug cases were, were, got guilty pleas, never went to trial. That's And I looked this up after the fact, um, but I knew this because if you're in these libertarian worlds, you hear these statistics all the time. There's such a high – the, the state is very – or the government is very good at getting people to plead guilty and avoid trial. And so in my mind, I'm thinking – if these guys are going to fight these charges, they better have a really good case because everybody pleads guilty. However, that's not how the other jurors, and I don't want to speak for them, but I did have really intense conversations with them over that week. Most of the other jurors have it in their mind that this is the United States. You get arrested, you get your day in court, and the jury decides and it's a fair system and that's how it works. And I made better choices with my life and that's why I'm not in that chair. And these guys are guilty. And uh, that glosses over all the evidence we looked at. But knowing that you're talking to people who have that mindset, if I go in there and say, Not guilty. Yeah, I can get a mistrial for everybody. And that's fine. And I can be proud of myself and I can pat myself on the back and say how good I did. However, the government, especially the federal government, has unlimited resources. They're gonna retry it. They don't think of the, they don't care about the cost of a long trial. They put their time and effort and money into getting these guys and they're gonna get them. And so had I gone in and just shut down conversation and said not guilty we're getting a mistrial. No one, you know, this uh, anyone listening to this podcast probably knows this from just talking to your friends about who will build the roads. Like they just shut down when you say you don't want government. It's like they can't even, you know, can't even contemplate that. You have to be able to get a conversation with them, ask questions, get them going down that path in order to come to their own conclusion. And so that was my intention Uh because what I wanted was the best possible outcome for these guys. And so I listened hard. I took good notes. I listened to the defense and I do believe they were not guilty. And so I was able to convince, and I don't want to take all the credit. I did have some jurors who were with me pretty much from the, well, yeah, from the beginning, they never wavered. Uh, There was two other guys, two other people who were right there with me the whole way. And I thank God they were there because when you show up to deliberations every day and you know most of the room hates you, it's very awkward. It's a very stressful situation to show up and you know you're gonna get shouted at, you know you're gonna get yelled at, and you're gonna sit there all day and you gotta come back. And no one wants to be there. Everyone wants to go home, and you're the reason they're not going home. It's uh it's it's uh it's tough. Someone at one point one of the drawers picked up a chair to throw it. We had a drawer crying and uh, I could go – I mean I don't know how much detail you want me to go into. At one point I used an analogy to explain the relationship because a, a conspiracy is a very specific – it's a very nuanced and very specific charge. The defense was actually, yes, these guys use drugs. They sell drugs. But this was not a conspiracy. And the government did a great job of scaring the jurors into saying guilty for some of these people or or at least voting for guilty. And so, if you just nullify the whole thing, they get retried, and who knows what the next jury is going to be like? These guys, a conspiracy charge is very serious. I found out after the trial how many years these guys were looking at. Some of them were life in prison. And so, if you just go in and say not guilty, and they get retried, well, how does that help the
0: defendant? Well, can you go into explaining a little bit about that? You know, you said they they used drugs, they sold drugs, but not didn't have a conspiracy. I mean. Cause I, I know that is a lot in libertarian circles. We hear it all the time. It's like someone gets charged with a crime and it's like a crime for committing XYZ, then also conspiracy to commit crime XYZ. Uh, yeah. And it just seems like piling on, but this is maybe a case where it's not necessarily piling on, but it's something that they're, they're getting charged with that's just kind of flat out false. Cause it's, it sounds like uh, that it wasn't just the state, didn't necessarily like you know oh got the wrong guys or something it was like more people
1: were involved and actually some of the defendants stipulated so
0: (laughs) but why is it that you're like so i guess that's the thing what was it and why are you so confident that that this charge shouldn't be applied not not that you could just say like well i disagree that drugs should be illegal. So I'm just going to say not guilty for that reason. But, but even on their own terms, the government's own terms that you believe yeah. that we we're not guilty. Sure.
1: So um, I tried to get, I tried to pull this up. I went on Pacer, which is a uh, system that has all the court filings that you can log in and get. Uh, I tried, so I tried to, I, I went into this case and tried to get as much as I could they don't have the final – I wanted to get the voir dire questions, which they're restricted, and I don't know why they're restricted, but I'm not able to look at them. Same with the juror instructions, but I did get the proposed juror instructions. Now, these were the the juror the instructions that the government provided. So the government provides for the judge, and I guess the defendants can too, and then they go back and forth and talk and work it out and get the juror instructions the juror instructions were about 130. I think it was 134 pages, 135 pages. It was pretty, there's a lot, a lot of reading, but that gave, that is literally the juror instructions. So all the definitions, everything you should be looking at, it doesn't talk about the evidence. It just talks about how you should decide the case. And, um, one of the instructions was single versus multiple conspiracies. So, the cons- there's three parts to a conspiracy and uh, why I don't know these off the top of my head is a good question because I read that document so many times um, but what I do know you it has to be one common goal it has to be a common goal the participants willingly entered into this um, plan into this goal and they they knowingly entered there's three parts to a conspiracy. And, but the charge is a single conspiracy and that's where it gets a little fuzzy. So if you read the definition of a conspiracy, you say, yes, they're all guilty. There is a conspiracy here. They all knew what they were doing. They all willingly entered into it and they all part of it is you don't have to even act as long as you agree or you're in on it. um, You can be included in this. And then there's, it's funny too. One of the instructions is any, action that any member of the conspiracy does can be attributed to all members of the conspiracy so if you can set that there's a conspiracy anything that happens in there can be applied to all the members of the conspiracy and i believe while i don't know this but i believe this was kind of put in for like organized crime where you have a mafia boss who doesn't actually pull the trigger but since you can set up the conspiracy you can Um, put that murder on him. I don't know if that's true, but that kind of makes sense to me why they would do that, Uh, or at least makes sense in a government world why they would do that. Um, But then, of course, it gets applied to everything. And so one of the instructions was single versus multiple. So once you establish that there is conspiracies, it has to be a single conspiracy with a single common goal. And so what that would be, what, what the difference between single and multiple is, If, Rallo, if you and I enter into an agreement to do whatever, and then we go forward with it, that would be a conspiracy. Now, we where a single conspiracy is, is there's one (laughs) common goal versus separate agreements. So the defense was, yes, these guys all entered in a conspiracy, but it's multiple conspiracies. And the way the defense attorney did it is he would put um, the main guy in the center, and then would have lines drawn out to all the other defendants. And it would be like the spokes. And he would say, it's it's a a rimless wheel. These were all separate agreements. They're all independent contractors working on their own behalf. This is not a single conspiracy. They didn't have a common goal. They weren't kicking money up to the to the guy in the middle. The guy in the middle wasn't telling them to go sell or directing them where to sell. It was all separate agreements. And that is important. Because that's what differentiated it from a single conspiracy. If the guy in the middle was on the phone saying, you know, Rallo, you go down to Third Street, I need you to be selling. Or Why aren't you selling more? Where, why didn't you give me my piece? Or, you know, you're not kicking money up to me. That would have been evidence of a single conspiracy. There was absolutely no evidence whatsoever that any of that happened. It was all buyer seller relationship. If someone wanted to buy PCP, they called this guy, they got it. That was the end of it. The guy in the middle never asked for money back. Um, never told anyone where to go. Never said we're in this together. They didn't have a gang name that it was just a guy selling to another guy. But it, I will say these drawer instructions are very confusing and very contradictory Um, and I think that's done on purpose. Uh, like some of the instructions would say something like buying on credit could be an indication that it's a single conspiracy, but buying on credit alone does not necessarily mean it is a single conspiracy. And so you're like, well, then what the hell does that mean? So I just shouldn't, you know, you know, there was, there was a ton of things like that in it. Um, But the bottom line was and what the defense was – and again, the judge allowed this defense – was that these guys were independent contractors, not members of an organization, which is what a single conspiracy is. And that's why I say all these guys were innocent of the charges of conspiracy. Uh, But you would be shocked how much a fight that was in deliberations.
0: Well, why – Let's take a step back for a second. Why do you think that the state was trying to do the single conspiracy charge? Was it, Were they trying to get like a ki- the kind of like kingpin kind of thing and be able to say, like, look at this huge drug organized drug ring that we that we cut down. Is, was it just for feathers, just simply for feathers in their cap? Do you think? That's what I believe. They
1: obviously don't tell me that. But that's what I sure. believe, because these guys, this was a, if they wanted to put these guys in jail, they could have done it very easily. The difference is it wouldn't have made the headlines. It wouldn't have been we busted up a big PCP ring. And and the reality is these guys weren't um, like this wasn't the cartel. These guys aren't living in some compound driving uh, exotic cars and all the women. These guys were, you know, you walk past them in the street and not think anything of it. Um, sure. I I know how much they got caught with. Uh, it was a lot relatively, but it was. We're not talking about a huge major drug operation. There isn't a single, it's not like no one in Philadelphia could get PCP after they busted this thing. Right. But some with some of the defendants, like one of the defendants who we did acquit, there was no evidence of all at all that he had anything to do with PCP. He sold codeine to the main guy and they put him on this conspiracy charge. Hmm. And I actually did sit down and talk with him. Um, and that's what he that was actually exactly what he told me because i said so why didn't they just charge you with codeine they knew they knew you would get that he said because there's no jail sentence with codeine but if you put me into this pcp thing um yeah you spent a lot of time in jail these guys these guys were looking at 30 plus years 30 to life uh if convicted and so it was a serious thing which is another point which just you know One of the comments I heard one of the jurors make in deliberations, because we went into the deliberations and people thought we were going home. Uh, Most of the jurors thought this is a slam dunk. They're all guilty. Let's send in a guilty verdict and get out of here. We don't have to come tomorrow. And that's where I was like, well, let's take a look at this. Let's look a little harder at this, because these are very serious charges. Um, These guys could be looking at life in prison. And I said that. And, of course, I didn't know. I didn't look. Up the trial, like I didn't, I didn't know what the possible sentence was. The judge doesn't tell you; the judge actually does tell you, or told us that we cannot take the punishment into account when making our decision. Um, but we didn't know what the punishment was. They never told us. They never told us what it could possibly be. And I said, you know, these guys. I think I, I said something like, these guys could be looking at twenty years or more. And I got laughed at. Hmm. And <laughs> the one guy said. We don't know what it is. You can't take that into consideration. But, you know, I mean, these are probably looking at time served, which is laughable to think that the federal government is going to put this much time and effort and hold a 12 a, a week trial to give them time served. It's just a it's that's just complete ignorance of how the, the government works how the state works. But that's what you're dealing with. And you have to you only get one shot. That's that's the other thing that you realize while you're there. Like, I can't. When I'm talking about the roads to someone, I can practice. I can talk to people. I can try this argument, try that argument. This one didn't work. This one didn't work. I can go back to the guy in three months and talk again. When you're on a jury, you got one shot. And once that decision's in, it's over. And there's no practicing. There's no trying again. And so knowing where these people are coming from, um, it's how are you going to convince them? The government's case, which is funny, where I say there was no evidence of a conspiracy, there really wasn't. You, you have to take my word for it. But they never, ever talked about being a gang. What they did do, however, was show the very first thing the government came out with their first piece of evidence on the first day of the trial was pictures of one of the raids where they had the DEA going into the building wearing the uh, hazmat suits. They look like they're going to take E.T. out. Okay. and that was their big piece of evidence they talked about that throughout the entire trial you need hazmat suits to do this stuff is so dangerous and they brought someone on who said it can be absorbed through the skin and they talked about what it does it's a disassociative um, but it's very highly dangerous if you spill that you know you're you're going to die essentially and we need hazmat suits well meanwhile You have surveillance across the road and you're taping people walk out of there. Not but by the way, they didn't identify everybody. Um, But you're letting this stuff that you're saying you need hazmat suits to handle. You're letting people, you know, they have it in their pocket and you're letting them walk out on the street by your own definitions. (laughs) You should be the criminal. You're letting this happen. If that was a bomb, if they're walking out with bombs, you think they're going to just let them walk out? Of course not. So they don't even believe, the uh, the hazmat thing. I, I really do think that they show up with the hazmat suits because they know it could go to trial and they're going to use that as evidence. And part of the reason why I, I say that is there was two raids in this case, and in the other one they didn't have—I forget what they call it—their mobile something unit, and that's where the the hazmat suits are. So the, at the other raid, they did it both the same morning. The cop took a picture of himself handling it with his bare hands. And testified because there was no record of this and there was no video evidence or picture evidence, but testified that he put it in his squad car and drove it to the other site, which is about 40 minutes away. Huh. So if it's so dangerous that you need hazmat suits to handle it, why did you allow one of your own guys to put it in his car and drive it to, <laughs> to the spot? Uh, they didn't actually take any pictures of the evidence at one location, which is pretty crazy. Um, it would the, the investigation was very sloppy but that was their big piece of evidence is this stuff is dangerous they're getting they're putting this poison on our streets this is you know we got to lock these guys away they never even argued that it was a conspiracy yet they expect us to just say guilty because we're scared of pcp Hmm. um it was really crazy to think how this probably happens every day
0: yeah it's one of those things where you think you know is it how much of a coincidence is that you know, you as a, an ANCAP who has your views that you do and is going to be, you know, looking real hard at, at the case that the state's going to bring. What's the, how much of a coincidence do you think that it's oh, you just happen to be on this case with really sloppy police work and really sloppy oh, yeah. evidence? It's like, no. well, probably not. This is probably more indicative that this is the this is the norm as opposed to the exception. And you hear stories on the news that are similar like this with with how sloppy, sloppy this work is and how corrupt the police are, <laughs> you know, let alone being sloppy. And so it just it just adds the to the mountain of evidence that. And they're, they're not good dudes doing this.
1: And here's the other thing to, to realize that other, I brought this up in deliberations and again, got laughed at, but you know, one side in this case knew this could potentially go to trial. It's not like, it's not like um, there was surveillance video of a fight and you're trying to figure out who did it. Like one guy or one side knew what they were doing. The other side had no idea you shouldn't be that sloppy there wasn't pictures taken there wasn't notes taken the guy actually so he had to testify what the dea agent testified that uh he saw the main guy walking into the address uh, at 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 one of the buildings and so when on cross examination they said and did you take pictures of him no i did not did you put a report of it they have to file a certain report no i did not so now, as jurors, we're supposed to just take his word. So, of course, me, I'm like, well, no, you didn't have – you said you did it, but you didn't show any evidence of it. But that was what other jurors were saying. Well, he testified to it. He testified mm-hmm. that he saw him there. And, like, So how do you reason – how do you talk to someone? It's very challenging. Um, but that's the – I mean the guy even testified. This is a DEA agent, testified that lean – because they were talking about lean – in one of the phone calls is PCP. And uh he said he'd never heard of the term purple drank before. Uh and I just can't believe that, being knowing I'm a nerd from the suburbs and I know what that stuff is. You're a yeah. DEA agent who does this for a living and you're you're telling me that lean is PCP. You're telling me you never heard of purple drink. Like what do you do like <laughs> with your job? You're you're on you're on the DEA. So he's either completely unqualified to be on the DEA <laughs> or or to testify in this case or he's lying and uh I do believe he was lying. I believe he lied several times actually. But uh that's that's how I perceived him. Gotcha. Um, and I don't think he was lying because he's a DEA agent. I believe he's lying because he was he I think he was a liar. Hmm. Um, his testimony actually changed throughout the course, and I believe he may have he may have been charged i i don 't know this for a fact, but something came up because they, the, one of the defendants was trying – he was uh, defending himself kept trying to he was asking questions if you have ever been charged with misconduct or something and and the the government kept uh, objecting and overruling, but he was going down that line of questioning uh, and he even said, even in regards to this case where you um, sanctioned or whatever the term is for for misconduct and he answered yes and then got objected to Mm -hmm. and that was sustained so um so something went on i don't know what happened with the dea agent i don't know what he was charged with if anything um it was actually one of the it was he was a philly cop on the drug task force uh, on one of the videos the audio conveniently cuts out when the confidential source gets back in the car, but the cop in the in the front seat turns around to him and does the like the shush signal, tells him to stop and kind of you know waves his hand across his neck like cut it out, and then puts his finger up to his mouth and says, shh, 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 you know, <laughs> uh, and we don't know what he said because the audio conveniently cut out, but uh, we do know this was testified to that he was double dealing the whole time. Uh, he never should have been used as a confidential source. He was stealing money from the DEA and selling drugs and contacting the uh, main guy in this investigation. It was something like 80 times in the in the four weeks he was used as a conf- – or six weeks he was used as a confidential source. They didn't get permission from his PO to be a confidential source. So this never should have been allowed um, according to the defense attorney I spoke to, but they made a challenge. They made a really strong challenge to that which with this challenge, these guys would have lost their job. And of course, you know, the judge, they all work together. They're all on the same team. They didn't allow that to go forward. So that's why that evidence was allowed to be used in court. Um, makes no sense to me,
0: but that's what I was told. Hmm. So you're on this jury and you already said that the, the, a lot of the fellow jurors other than like two people were not on your side at all, getting angry, getting frustrated, but you ended up getting these guys. A lot of them uh, acquitted. Some of them mistrial. Um, how how did that happen? How did you go from the other jurors being combative to getting verdicts that were pretty good in your book? Not pretty good, but about as as good as you could ever hope for as the as the result of this trial.
1: Um. Yeah. So, well, for one, I was. I was not going to convict on conspiracy and I was holding out as long as possible. And for some of these guys, um, it was very clear that, um, that we could make a case, whether it was the amount they purchased. The one guy was no evidence of PCP at all, yet there was still jurors saying he was guilty. Um, you know, there was a little bit, uh, I guess, of give and take. And, and what I'm thinking, you remember, been going through these deliberations for a long time, and you're in that room all day, no windows, no phones, no internet, no books. You're in this room with these people. And there was some obvious charges that if we say guilty to, um, they were lesser charges. They carry a lesser sentence, and uh, there, there's also we had to vote on the amount of possession. And my thinking is here: if I continue to say not guilty, now one one thing to note here, the defense attorney at the end of his closing said, "If you want to find him guilty on these charges, we don't we're not going to complain, but look really hard at this one." And so that was in my back pocket Um, and um, still, you know, it's, you can tell where it's going. I'm not comfortable even saying it. I'm not proud of it, but we did say guilty on some possession charges. Uh, However, we got to vote on the amount of possession they had and some jurors wanted to get him for the maximum and there was, there was three levels and we went, we were able to get the minimum. And maybe this is rationalization after the fact, but this was my thinking going in. Um, Once I relented there, they were more willing to talk about the other guys. And I don't like the idea of trading lives. But if I look at what I believe were the only two options is a mistrial on all charges and all seven get retried, or we get the main guy on the smaller charges and get minimum possession, by the way. The minimum amount, which is a difference it's a big difference in years. I don't know what it is, but it was huge that we got the minimum amount uh, of possession um, as opposed to the maximum, which would have been a very long jail sentence. And so my thought is the attorney said, if you find them guilty here, we're not going to complain too much, but look hard at these ones. So if this goes, if we get a mistrial on everything, like I said, they get retried and (laughs) Maybe all seven of them are guilty. We had a lot. Most of the jurors thought all of them were guilty when we went into deliberations. Um, If they're guilty on everything, I mean, this guy goes away for life. No doubt about it. If he gets maximum possession, maximum amount attributed to him. Um, but once I was able to do that, I guess they thought I was a little more reasonable and I was able to get the other three guys out. And I say, I, there was two other people who were right there with me. Um, and I don't want to take anything away from them cause they fought very hard and they were very good jurors. And, um, but that was difficult. And I still think about it all the time, but when I know, had I not done that, the retrial, these guys are guilty. I, I just had that feeling based on the, on the way the jury went. Um,
0: yeah. I mean, you, you get, you get shoved into a situation that you don't really want to be in. And sometimes you got to look into the, the dark abyss of reality and say, there are no good solutions. There really, are no perfect solutions to this outcome. See, so I mean, you, you do what you try to create the most good, which I think you obviously did.
1: Well, that was my goal. I wanted the best outcome. And when I talked, I did talk to that guy's attorney, um, the guy we said guilty on, and I apologized. And now he's an attorney, and I'm a juror. He's not going to scold me. But no, he said this was a great verdict for them. Um, And he mentioned the fact, he said, you you realize the fact that they got the minimum amount attributed to him is very big in sentencing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what? it's like, what do you do? If it gets retried and they get the max, well, how did that help the the, the guys who were really affected? I get to go home after this. No matter what our decision was, I could go home. I could have went in there and said guilty to everything. We could have been out of there in five minutes. Um, but I we fought hard for these guys, and we got three people out. I mean, I met with these, all three of them in person. We had lunch together. Um And they're very happy to be out of prison and knowing, you know, they told me after the fact they were facing a long time up to life in jail, had they been convicted. And, uh, you know, I'm happy with the result. I wish it could have been better, but I don't I don't believe knowing how the deliberations went. I don't believe it could have been better. I think we got the best possible verdict here. And the guys are being retried. And that was another thought I had after the trial is, okay, well, the main guy was guilty on these smaller charges. Maybe they'll just give up. (laughs) And of course they didn't. They're recharging the four who had mistrials on conspiracy. They're being retried in October. So um, I tried hard. I tried hard to get not guilty on everything. And I was literally, I actually was told this in deliberations One person said, my problem is I believe everything the government tells me. Uh, Another thing I heard was don't make analogies. I hate analogies. I can't stand analogies, no more analogies. And I was trying to, you know, compare this organization to something that I do for a living where I'm a a wholesaler. So I have several clients we all have individual agreements with. They don't care if I'm, actually, they don't even want me to make money. They want to make all the money. Um, You know, so we have separate agreements. There isn't, a conspiracy. And I was, I was shouted down with that. And they said, yeah, but selling insurance isn't illegal. This is illegal. I'm like, well, that's not the point. The point is the relationship. I, I can't, I can't take that. Doesn't even make sense to me. I can't even think that way. So, you know, you're in a tough spot. And people, when I, when I would say, I, I remember a guy got up and yelled at me cause I said, guys, these are very serious. Like think before you just say guilty, let's, these are very serious charges the guy stood up and said, PCP is a very serious drug. It's like, but they're not PCP isn't on trial for being a serious drug. This is a conspiracy trial and guys just don't want to hear. it. I mean, there was one of the defendants actually didn't mention PCP at all on any of the wiretaps. There was no, no evidence against him. Um, What I found out later was, and maybe he was supplying it. We don't know because there was absolutely no evidence of it, but that's what the government alleged is that he was the main supplier to the um the main guy in this case and what they were hoping was that one of the defendants would flip and testify against him but none of them did mm. um and so they actually had nothing on him but that doesn't change the fact that he was in prison for 27 months awaiting trial um and he went through a lot of hardships for that even though he was eventually acquitted uh, uh yeah I don't know where I was gonna go other than the the frustration I thought the liberation would be easier. I mean, I was nervous going in. I knew this was my one shot, but I argue difficult things all the time with people, and I thought I could handle it pretty well, but when you get shut down, you're not even allowed to make analogies um they didn't like people just didn't want to hear it and- well they
0: it's not like some a lot of the jurors weren't even aware of what they were supposed to be. No liberating on and you we know kept
1: re- reading these instructions over and over again and I kept trying to put it in other words to explain like this has to be uh, an organization this isn't you know and they just didn't even they didn't want to hear it at all they just had it in their mind these guys are bad guys When another funny thing was they all have nicknames i mean most you know like i have nicknames for my friends uh rallo has a nickname when i talk to him and it's just funny as we went into, it's not funny, actually. It's kind of disturbing, but you hear things like, uh, yeah, they put their nicknames up there. They weren't, they were not, the government did a great job of dehumanizing these people because it was all jokes. It was all jokes the whole time about these people and the, the language they use and the names they use. They sell some of the PCP and Snapple bottles. So they'll call it a Snapple and like, You know, so some guy would go out and buy Snapple and joke about how he has Snapple. It's not funny at all. Like, the guy wasn't funny. He thought he was. Um, And uh, when we went into deliberations, when I said, let's slow down and look at this, they, like, rolled their eyes at me, went up to the whiteboard and wrote down all their nicknames and said, like, his baby mama was in the audience. It's like, you don't know who that girl was. And why are you calling her baby mama? You don't know who she is. It could be his sister. But... Hmm it's just like a, I, it was really disturbed. I, I don't know. I'm not just, I'm not giving it justice of how disturbed I was at the, the conversation in deliberations at just how dehumanizing it was. And they're laughing at all their nicknames. And, um, it was, it was really, it was sad. Um, because these are human beings over there across the room from us. And I, I say that I, I, I'm thinking of certain jurors in particular, um, I said there was two other jurors who were great. They were right there. They looked at it. They took it serious. They knew the impact of this case. I think most, there were some jurors who didn't care one way or the other. They just wanted to get out of there. If most of the people said not guilty, they were going to vote not guilty. If most of the people said guilty, they were going to vote guilty. They didn't care. Um, And then there was some other jurors who I thought gave it an honest effort. And knowing that drugs are involved, it's, the defense didn't even deny that they were involved in the drug trade. So it was easy to say guilty because, and I heard this, I said it earlier, but I heard this from George, I made better decisions with my life. Um, But what's important here is the charges. If they charge them with possession, okay. uh, I think they probably would have pled guilty to it because why go through a whole trial with a longer sentence, but they believe they were, there was no conspiracy and I believe that as well. So. Um, I there, yeah, there, it it was tough in deliberations. A lot of them came around, but there was there was really one one guy was the ringleader, but there was two or three, well, eh, probably closer to four of them, who were just guilty on everything all the time and didn't want to relent. And even when we once we got the three acquittals, of course, I was quick to put that on the on the jury sheet, I had the foreman go ahead and put that, write that in, not guilty, right there. Let's send it to the judge and tell her we're not getting anywhere with these. I kind of expected the judge to send us back and deliberate more cuz she did once and uh the 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 court deputy told us sometimes deliberations take over a month. <laughs> huh. Uh so I thought she was going to send us back and try again but she accepted the verdict. And that's another thing. Um I I was doing that. I really wanted I kept encouraging the foreman to send it to the judge because it was almost like a stall tactic, I guess. Um, I wanted time to like, think about it and make a better case for the, um, lesser charges, but we did have three not guilty. And I, I know how rare that is in federal court and she did accept it. And that was, that was it. That was the end. So, um, I don't know. I, 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 it was a long trial. There's a lot I could go into about, uh, (laughs) I, I know there was something else I was going to say about the the dehumanizing these people, but, um, it slipped my mind. So
0: anyway, that that's all right. Uh, I already, already uh, submitted <laughs> a lot of information about this already. And there's uh there's definitely more to come that we're going to cover on this, but, uh, do you have anything else that you wanted to kind of wrap up with on this? Just,
1: I think that, um, after talking to these guys and meeting them. And I, I mean, I, I, you know, we hung out, uh, I have their phone numbers. I text them. Uh, We've become somewhat of friends and they're people like anyone else. And I know most of the people listening to this probably get that. Um, We don't know their situation, where they were, where they were raised, what pressures there was, what they did. What I do know is that some of these guys had no idea why they were arrested um, they had no clue they were involved in this there. They find it hard to get jobs, uh, when you get out after being in federal prison for a couple of years, even though they were acquitted, uh, it really affects their lives. And, um, if you get jury duty, it's very stressful. It's very hard. At least it was for me. Uh, maybe some of you guys could handle it better, uh, But my goal was to get the best possible outcome, and I think I did that. But the fact that I didn't go in there and get out of jury duty because no one wants to do it, no one on the jury wants to be there. But by getting out of the jury, now you have no – I understand you don't have a responsibility to anyone else's lives, but if you want to make an immediate impact on someone's life – Get on a jury and pay attention to the defense and make the case because if you can get 12 people to or 11 other people to agree, you change someone's life immediately. And in this case, we got three guys um, who aren't in a cage anymore and uh, they're very grateful and they don't deserve to be in a cage. And thankfully, they got a jury who was willing to listen. As frustrated as I was with the jurors on this case, all 12 of us agreed even if some of it was begrudgingly agreed to say not guilty. And for that they they have their, uh, they they're out, they have their freedom. And so just, if you get jury duty, do what you want with it, throw it out, go in and say I'm an anarchist or go in and say, I don't trust the state or I'm a racist or I hate Muslims or whatever it is you want to say to get out. That's fine. That's your decision. But just understand the the what, what impact you can have if you do serve and you do and you are able to get someone acquitted. It's life-changing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And hopefully it, it uh, kind of cascades down into maybe they're not as aggressive in trying these cases in the future since they can't get guilty verdicts, uh, knowing that they're going to spend a lot of time, money, and resources and, and end up not getting that, uh, notch in their lipstick case over it. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's absolutely amazing what you're able to accomplish. And, you know, we're all, you know, people listening to this, you and I, we're all libertarians trying to make a, an impact, positive impact on the world. And a lot of what we advocate for at least is kind of longer term stuff, it's slow, y- you know, you're not going to see the, uh, you know, cause we're, we're trying to make the state obsolete not necessarily trying to overthrow <laughs> the state outright. Right. Um, so it, it, it can get frustrating because you don't see the, uh, the impact on what you're doing right away. But, but something like this, like you were saying, it's, it is immediate and it it really can uh, put someone on, on a much better track for their lives. So uh, it's a great thing. And, and I think it's important that people understand what it really is like to be on a jury and, and to do something like this, uh, especially if you never have done it. I know just talking to you about it here and hearing you explain it uh, a bunch of times, it really, really helped put me in the right frame of mind on, on how to do this. And I really think that if I didn't hear you explain everything that you went through and, and what, what I might uh, expect in the future that I, I probably would have messed it up.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's, I don't know. You know, I, I thought I did the best I could. Um, I thought we got a good verdict. It's not as easy as I thought it was going to be. Uh, not guilty is definitely better than a mistrial and a mistrial is better than a guilty. Um, You know, I, uh, I'm not, I'm not proud, but I know I had, to, I, I believe, I believe that was the way to get the not guilty's um and yeah I'll, i gotta live with it and they gotta live with it but had that not happened like i said i'm gonna. i have to i always repeat it we don't know we don't know if all seven of them get retried if all seven of them are guilty um and we don't know about the the, the amount attributed to the main guy what happens there uh i have a feeling A strong feeling that because when we went into deliberations, most of the room thought it was easily guilty on everything. We're not even – we're going home tonight and it's over. The the trial ended at like 3 p.m. and they thought we would be out of there by 5, done. Hmm. Like there was going to be no discussion if I didn't speak up. That's how guilty these people were to some of the other jurors. And so overcoming that and changing the minds of 11 people really – uh, nine people because, uh, two people were, as soon as I, I I, I don't like to kind of make it sound like I'm taking credit for this, but we all kind of sat there and everyone, the feeling in the room was guilty. And I spoke up and these other two people were right there with me. Um, had I not spoken up, I'm sure they would have, but, uh, yeah, it it was a quite an experience. Um, you'll probably hear more about it. (laughs) I actually just got a text from one of the guys right now. Um, Yeah. So I'm sure you'll be hearing uh, more about this. And I hope to give their side of the story or let them give their side of the story. And I thought that would be interesting to hear from what their perspective was, what was going through their mind, what it was like being in prison, even though you're not guilty and you know you're not guilty. And that's that's what they they said to me was, I have no problem doing time for something I did, but I'm not going to plead guilty to something I didn't do. And in this case, it was a conspiracy. So they clearly saw what the charges were, and they knew what the charges were. But all us jurors, we're regular guys. We're not legal scholars. We're, we're not invested the way they are. And the charges get thrown out there, and the drug is scary, and the people are scary, and the language they use on the phone is scary. And they need to be in prison, and that's usually wins the day it seems, so um I don't know I know I'm repeating myself, uh, my mind's still racing over this case as I think of all kinds of stuff about it, so anyway, that's all I got. if you have questions for me, reach out on Twitter um, and uh you know you'll hear more you'll you'll hear more about this case, I'm sure of it
0: yeah, yeah, I'll probably uh name this part one of whatever uh because those there's, there's gonna be more yep so um uh, all right do you have a uh, free market success story no since I, that was the episode I, I, of full-on statism yeah <laughs> uh
1: yeah now I'm, and whenever i get in the mode in this case getting that that um frame of mind my my mind goes back to it I'm, I'm reeling right now so
0: okay so i i can save the day for you so Another, uh, last week in the free market success story, I talked about the fishing trip and taking the Dramamine and how that helped me. Well, there's another part of that. Uh, after we, uh, came back from the trip, we came back with, uh, well, 40, we kept 49 fish, but came back with 48 fish because one of the Bonita, we, uh, we actually, the mate cut it up for us and we ate it raw out in the ocean and it was absolutely delicious. But, uh, you know, you're out. You know, you're waking up real early in the morning to go fishing. You would go on a, a fishing trip. A lot of us had drammine in us. So, you know, it, there's there's some drowsy effects of to that towards the end of the day. So kind of the last thing you want to do after you get off this boat is go home and clean fish. So when we were coming back in, the mate called a uh, the fish cleaners. And they met us uh, basically at the dock. And you hand them to the fish. They filleted them up for us. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we paid them, paid them the bill, what they were charging. And it was, it was really reasonable for, especially that number of fish. And, and, you know, they made some money. We got fish cleaned for us at a nice little service and they came to where we were. We didn't have to go to a store. They, they drove to, to where the boat was coming in. So it was a nice little, uh, experience to cap off the day with that. And guess what? Some of the seagulls got, got a meal out of it cause they were, they were kind of throwing the <laughs> the scraps at them actually it was funny they it's watching people uh who are good at the craft <laughs> you know one just kind of filleting up this fish uh doing it much better than i ever could but uh they started throwing some of the scraps at the seagulls and he kind of made the comment eventually he's just kind of like i'm not trying to be a, a you know a nice guy to them it's if i can keep them over there they're not flying over us and you know yeah. pooping and and trying to steal the steal the actual uh fillet. So good times had by all. So with that, uh remember again the show notes page is mcflugel.com slash one fifty three. Are there any links that I th- that you think would be appropriate to throw in there for this? We um, I don't think there nah, it's
1: just me talking. Okay. Um, I've never written about it or anything. So
0: gotcha. Um yeah. Okay. So yeah, so if you are Go to the show notes page, uh, libertymugs.com, buy a mug or two or three or a million, and also check out 10hoursbitcoin.com. And also, uh, wherever you're catching this podcast, uh, subscribe to us, give us a review and a rating. Uh, it really helps us out. And also share share the podcast, especially this one. I, I think this is a really important uh, topic and a really important case study for, for something that any of us couldn't be find ourselves involved in so i think it's important to get this word spread out about uh, a good way a good example of how to do this so thanks for listening everyone and we will catch you next week peace